In the book, The God Who Hung on the Cross, journalist Ellen Vaughn tells a story of when the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia. It was September 1999. The pastor, which she does not use his real name in the book, uh, traveled to northern Cambodia, an isolated area where most villagers uh, and most were, were Buddhist and spiritualist. Christianity was virtually unheard of. To the pastor's surprise, when he arrived at that one small rural village, the people warmly embraced his message about Jesus. When he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an old woman shuffled forward, bowed, and gasped the pastor's hands and said, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story of the mysterious God who hung on the cross. It was in the 1970s when the Kumar Rouge of the brutal communist-led regime took over Cambodia, destroying everything in its path. And when the soldiers finally descended upon this rural village in 1979, they immediately rounded up the villagers, forced them to start digging their own graves. And as the villagers, as you can imagine, were in despair as you're digging your own grave, they began to prepare themselves to die. So they screamed to their various gods, to, to Buddha, or they screamed to demon spirits, or to their ancestors. But one of the women started to cry out based on a childhood memory of a story her mother told her about a god who hung on the cross. And the woman began to pray to this unknown god on a cross. And the rest of the villagers heard this prayer to this unknown God who hung on a cross. And it soon became the whole village began to cry out to the God who hung on a cross. And this cry was, this crying was so loud and they were so preoccupied to it. And eventually it kind of squandered down. It got quieter and quieter. And then they began to notice the eerie silence of the jungle. In the midst of all that, the soldiers had left. And they got to live. As the old woman finished telling the story to the pastor that they had been waiting ever since that day for 20 years for someone to share the rest of the story about the God who hung on the cross. Many of us have heard about Jesus. Many of us have heard that he has died on the cross. And many of us have heard the other pieces of his story. Who is waiting for you to share the rest of the story of Jesus? Many people in our culture, they know who Jesus is in part. They know a little bit of the story of why, God who hung on the cross. Who is waiting for you to tell the rest of the story of the God who hung on the cross? As we turn to our passage today in John 19, 17-37, we begin to the account of the crucifixion according to John. Now, the other Gospels, they will give some more details about the events, some other details, and, and uh, each author, they're not contradictory, they're just emphasizing particular elements of this event. John's emphasis is not so much on the horrific details of the cross, and although it is horrific, but his emphasis is on the sovereign plan of God to accomplish the atonement of his people. And why the cross is a horrific event. Jesus isn't a victim of circumstance. He freely, willfully chooses the cross 
chooses humiliation for our sake. There's three things that John is really emphasizing in this passage we read this morning. That the cross is prophecy fulfilled. That the cross is a provision of grace. And the cross is the purpose given to all. Let's look at that. The cross as prophecy fulfilled. In John 19, 17, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called to a to the place called the place of skull, which is in Aramaic is called Gagatha. Criminals were often and usually required to carry the cross beam of their own cross. I mean, so just, you know, sometimes we've seen that picture of Jesus carrying the whole cross, even with the upright beam, right? Normally, in which what happened happen is they would carry the cross beam. So after they had been flogged and scourged, they would tie them to that cross, and they would have to carry that cross beam to the place where the upright beam was. And oftentimes, because we know the scourging was to get them to the place of death so they would die quickly on the cross, so they wouldn't hang there too long, that many times the uh, criminal couldn't carry that cross beam all the way to the place of death. And in Jesus' case, it was the same. He was unable to carry it all. And so in other Gospels, we see Simon of Serene, is it Simon of Serene? Yeah, Simon of Serene, who helps Jesus carry the cross beam to the place where he's going to die. But also, bearing that wooden beam is connected to the very promise of God all the way back to the story of Abram. You remember the story of Abram that becomes Abraham, right? This is, this is the story where God encounters Abraham out of nowhere in the midst of he's been forgotten about. And Abraham, God reveals himself to Abraham and makes this promise to Abraham that out of Abraham, he's going to bless the whole world and his descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And it's just this grant of promise to Abraham. And at the end of the story of Abraham, like this, really the story of Abraham is him really learning to accept that promise, that this is God's provision for him. And so Abraham tries lots of different ways to fulfill this promise. But eventually at the end of the story, Abraham begins to trust that God has a plan and that God's going to fill. And so he, like he's gone childless for a long time. And then finally he's given Isaac. And then God says, you need to sacrifice Isaac. You need to take him up to the mountain and you need to kill him. And so here, in this story of Genesis 22, 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, Isaac is not a young child at this point, or he's probably like a teenager, but you imagine, Isaac is carrying his own wood in which he's going to be sacrificed. And at this point, we're not even sure Isaac knows exactly what's going to happen. But the point is, he's bearing the wood beam to his own sacrifice. And of course, we know the story that God stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. And and in that, is this a a bit of a glimpse, and we could talk more about that later, is that uh, many of the cultures around them and all the faiths, they offered children as sacrifice to their gods. And in the midst of this, God is teaching his people, this is not the way. This is not what we do. And there's other parts of Scripture where God encounters and ends that kind of practice. And this is even before God has established the sacrificial system with Moses, which all points to the cross. One of the points of that story is God alone is the one that makes the proper and final sacrifice. And you and I never have to sacrifice our children. He alone 
is the one that sacrifices his son for the sake of all. And then we have in the story four soldiers dividing the garments of Jesus in four parts. In verse 23, emphasizing this point, this was to fulfill the scripture. Look at Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, what, does anyone know anything about Psalm 22? What's Psalm 22 famous for? It's the first line in Psalm 22. Come on, this is Bible trivia. You, you say confidently. Don't, don't hesitate. Yes, this is the song that Jesus quotes on the cross. My, not in this gospel, but another gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a great messianic psalm which starts off in incredible despair and it has this radical turn of God's salvation in the midst of this. That in that, it's that messianic psalm which Jesus quotes. Here it is, that fulfillment that they cast lots for his garments. And then extra bonus, when you go, just go back in John, in John 13, as he's washing his uh, disciples' feet in the upper room, notice what it says here, John 13, 3-5, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he, came, that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments disrobed, just like he was disrobed at the cross, and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There, he ceremonially washes their feet. It counts that you are cleansed. You are ceremonially cleansed. He takes off his outer garments. On the cross, his outer garments are taken away, and Jesus doesn't just ceremonially clean us. He actually cleanses us from all our sins and takes them upon himself. Jesus atones for our sins. He makes right our sins. He justifies us. In John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, Lots of people in this story unconsciously play their part in the crucifixion and God's plans. Pilate, he doesn't know this is God's plan, but he plays his part. Judas, he doesn't know God's plan, but he plays his part. The chief priests, they don't know God's plan, but they play their part in doing the sovereign will of God. But Jesus knows exactly the Father's will for him. And he fulfills every aspect of it. And this is not to say that Jesus is on the, on the cross and he has this checklist. Like, I got to make sure I say this. I, shoot, we got to get this last one in, make sure this is fulfilled. Uh, but in that moment, he knows. He also, no, so it, Jesus was probably dehydrated on the cross because this is what the cross is meant to do, to dehydrate you as well. So he probably is thirsty for him to say, I thirst, but he also knows the word of God because it's, it's his word. And so he could recall, I thirst, like, yeah, this is fulfilling all of God's plan. I Thirst, so steeped in him, the word of God, he makes these connections. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. There's that Psalm twenty-two again. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. 
And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And then at the end, right, the soldiers break the legs of the criminals next to Jesus, uh, but they did not break Jesus' legs because they found him dead already. Now, one of the reasons why the Romans did this is, was to speed up death. Like, so uh, part of the crucifixion of the cross, you can actually see it on this miniaturized version, they had a little place where they uh, put their feet rest so they could actually push up because the cross was actually a, a death of asphyxiation. It would collapse your body upon you. And so the moment they would have, and they would nail your feet and arms, so that would, you have to bear your weight on those nails. So he would push up for a moment to gasp breath and then come back down. Of course, unbearable pain in the midst of that. But sometimes they would speed it up so you break your legs so they couldn't uh, catch their breath anymore. Uh, but when they found Jesus, he was already dead. Now, because the Jews wanted this, I said, let's hurry this along, because they didn't want it, the bodies down from the cross on sundown, because it's the Sabbath is coming. When sundown happens, it's the beginning of the Sabbath until the next sundown. And so, because it was um, bodies hanging on a cross, someone hanging on a cross was considered, that body was cursed, because you were cursed if you hung on the cross or hung on a tree, and that was your death. But the problem with that is that the next, right, it's going to be the Sabbath, which is a holy day, so they couldn't take him down, but it's this, it would actually infect the whole land in their view. It would ceremonially make the whole land unclean if that body was still there. Uh, and so this is why they were urgently like, you need to get that down, because the next day was a big celebration. It was the Sabbath in the Passover, and it would corrupt the whole land for a week, and they, they want it to celebrate their holy days. And so say, like, let's rush this along. Let's move this. And of course, when they found Jesus, he was already dead on the cross and his legs were not broken. In John 19, 36, 37, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's just repeated over and over in this passage. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And of course, uh, you can also connect his, his bones into the uh, Passover lamb bones as well. In Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones of the Passover lamb. In Psalm 34, 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then those the hymn pierces, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and wept bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The clear emphasis is that every prophecy in Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. The cross and the atonement was the Father's plan before the foundation of the world. Jesus is actively obeying and fulfilling the Father's plan for us. This moment alone is the sovereign plan of God and no one else's plan. The cross is, is prophecy fulfilled and is also a provision of grace. Remember last week we talked about this context of, of this power struggle between Pilate and the chief priests. And here in this passage we get Pilate takes his parting shot. 
to the crowd and to the chief priest by putting up the charge on the cross. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, this is his charge, king of the Jews. And of course, he knows that they do not like that title. And he's like, great, here's your king. This is why you want him dead. Here you go, his parting shot to further infuriate them. And of course, they are infuriated. And they say, change that. He does not. So what I've written, I have written. You see, Pilate is trying to humiliate those who have humiliated him. Interesting, the contrast. Jesus chooses to give grace to those who have humiliated him. What an interesting contrast of the way of the world and to the way of our Lord. We learned last week, right, the power of God is grace. Unmerited favor. The cross is all about grace from every moment to every beginning to end. It is all about grace. This unmerited favor from God that you do not deserve and that you have not earned. You have not earned God's forgiveness. You have not earned his, the atonement in which he takes for you. And you do not earn the standing right with God. You do not earn to be united with God in union with Jesus, what he does at the cross for us. It's all unmerited favor, grace from beginning to end. And in the midst of all this unmerited grace for our sins and this justice, I mean, this righteousness imputed upon us, in the midst of Jesus on the cross giving that much grace, he gives grace upon grace. He has the wherewithal and the mindset like, man, I need to give grace to my mother. My mother is here with me. So Jesus provides grace to her. Because in a moment, I mean, Mary is a widow. And she has other siblings. Jesus has other siblings. But they are nowhere to be found because they have seen what he's done. And like, this guy is out of his mind. Now, what's interesting is his siblings come around. They eventually come around after the resurrection. But they are nowhere to be present at the cross. They have not been following Jesus around. And so Mary probably has no one to take care of her because they've kind of disowned Jesus and disowned Mary who has been following her son around. But there it is, his beloved disciple, John himself, the author of this gospel. And Jesus demonstrates a provision of grace on the cross for his mother. He says to John, take care of your mother now. And tells Mary, this is your son. In this moment, he provides a grace for her. And we were told that John takes in Mary for Jesus. Provides grace upon grace. Because being a widow, she would have been very vulnerable without her son taking care of her. Jesus makes sure that she is taken care of. Grace upon grace. The cross is prophecy fulfilled. It is a, a provision of grace, and it is a the purpose given. In John 19, 28-30, after this, Jesus said, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture. How many times has that been repeated? I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is 
finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The word here to fulfill the scripture is actually a different word than anywhere else in this passage where he's talking about fulfill the scripture. Other places he has said multiple times to fulfill the scripture. But here in this passage right now in this sentence, it's a different word to fulfill the scripture. It's the same word that he uses knowing that all was now finished. It's the same word when he uses on the cross. It is finished. It's that same word fulfilled. What we've known about John is that he's willing to incorporate important cultural words and ideas to explain the gospel. And we learned at the very beginning that he uses the word logos. This Greek philosophical word means the, the purpose of all things or the meaning of the universe. And he relates it to Jesus. And of course, it means more than that. He's using it. He's the word of God. Or the breath comes out. But here in the same word, this, this word that he uses finish or to fulfill was an important Greek philosophical word, which means the end or the goal of all things. In this moment, Jesus says the goal of the universe is finished. It has been fulfilled, the meaning and purpose of the universe. The goal being the the unity of God's people with God is now finished at the cross. By, By the very means, what separated his people from God was sin. And so God deals with it head on. He takes on the sins of all his people. He bears the wrath of God. He dies. He takes on the penalty. But he does more than that. He actually gives us, imputes his righteousness upon us, his very character. So when the father sees his children, he sees the perfect son, Jesus, in all of us, our righteous deeds. And then, of course, he gives us more. He gives us the Holy Spirit that begins to transform that character inside out. But the reason in which we are justified, the reason which our sins are imputed upon him and his righteousness is imputed upon us is because we are tied and united to God. This is his act, his grace. It is finished, the goal of the universe is finished by the purpose of the universe, Jesus Christ. And this, this idea that, at, like, why is it at the cross? Like, you and I don't feel like finished products, right? Well, some of us don't. None of us are. But here's the thing about justification, right? You are, you are justified at the cross, and you live in that salvation, that complete salvation that is already but not yet, You see, what God has justified, this is his promise. He will sanctify. And what God sanctifies, he will glorify. God has promised that he will complete you. That you are his work and he will finish it all. But at the cross, we stand as finished products declared by God. This is all finished. Jesus accomplished and finished the work, the atonement of God. He has finished the work of the Father that was planned for him. He finished his very purpose and the goal of the universe, that the creation being reunited with the creator. Jesus fulfills the purpose given. Jesus finished the goal. 
that was Jesus' purpose and goal. It's not your purpose. Your purpose is not to carry the weight of the world. Your purpose is not to impute your righteousness upon anyone. So what is our purpose? It's stated right here. John's very clear about his purpose. In John 19, 35, John, his beloved disciple, he knew the purpose given to him. He who saw it, John's talking about himself, it has borne witness. This testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. John is saying, look at, this is not something I'm making up. I was there. I saw him die. I saw him crucified. I saw him resurrected. I walked with him for three years and learned from him. This is the truth. John gives his life for this truth. He says, I bear witness to this truth. I personally saw it. And the reason why I'm writing this gospel, the reason why I tell all people this truth, is so that they may believe, that they may have faith. It goes on in John 20, 30, 31, the very purpose and why he writes this gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He knows his purpose. He knows the call upon his life. And by the way, that's the call upon your life. You might not have been an eyewitness to the cross, but you, are, you have heard the testimony of the eyewitness. You and I believe. You stand here and believe and have faith and have life because John fulfilled his purpose. We have faith as a long line of people that have believed in Jesus because he was willing to do his call. Those villagers in Cambodia, they waited 20 years for someone to come to them to fulfill the goal of telling them about the God who hung on the cross. Who is waiting for you to share the rest of the story of Jesus? Who is waiting for you to finish the story of the God who hung on the cross? And listen, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning. There's lots of ways in which we can actually witness, right? We can witness by the way we live in community, and we should not dismiss that at all. But it is very clear in Scripture, Romans 10. They will only believe if they hear the word of God if they hear truth. Now, there's other ways that might help them along the way, but they have to hear the truth. It has to be spoken. How are they believe if they never heard? And then how beautiful are the feet that actually tell them? This is our calling. The term here to bear witness is, is, a, is a funny word because when we actually translate this word literally, it means martyr. And of course, we have interpreted that word martyr as someone who's willing to suffer, to die for others. The reason why we translate the word is because all of the apostles were willing to just do that, to suffer 
and to die so that others may hear the truth. Now, you may not have to die. I mean, you're going to die. That's a reality. The message and model of the cross is this extraordinary grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus willing to suffer and be humiliated so that he might fulfill the purpose to bring everlasting life to his children. Our purpose and calling is to bear witness to that truth. Bear witness requires a willingness to model that truth, to model that grace that is that truth that, that, that no one deserves it, including yourself. A willingness to suffer, a willingness to die because you know, you know there's something worse than physical death in this world. And that's being spiritually dead. That's being separated from God. Are we willing to fulfill our purpose no matter the cost so that others may hear the truth of the life, the truth of the grace of the cross, the truth of, of prophecy fulfilled, the truth of, of grace provided, and the truth of the purpose given to all God's children. Who is waiting for us to bear witness to Jesus? Who is waiting for our grace and our courage to speak about the grace of God for them? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know I need to repent of times that I'm hesitant to share you, times that I hold back, times I don't even pray for opportunities to share. The gift of your grace, the times that I, I lack that grace to, to give to others. Lord, help us as a community to learn to live and embrace that grace, to, to embrace that call and purpose in our lives, to share in a community the grace of God, to speak the truth of God and the grace of God into our lives, but also to our neighbors, to our friends, to our enemies, to all those who are willing to listen, no matter the cost for us. But in our sharing, help us to live out and model the grace in which you modeled for us. That those who tried to humiliate us, that we respond not in humiliation back, not the way the world would, but respond with grace. Give us a spirit first and foremost to pray. To pray for that grace and pray that others may hear the word. And then give us the courage to verbalize it pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Please stand as they